so thank you for coming. Um, so I'm going to talk about this machine today. Um, a year ago or so, I was preparing a workshop. Um, I was going to Finland to teach uh, radio feature making and creative sort of storytelling with sound. And, and I was going to teach um, a group of uh, news reporters and people that work on daily programs, culture. And, and um, I was sort of in my kitchen uh, sort of making notes when my son came in and he likes to build things and sort of with Lego, and he likes to make time machines, and uh, him and his brother, they're always sort of talking about these things and where they'll go. And So I was there, and, and, uh, and he came to me, and he said, you know, I've decided, he was asking me what I was doing, and he said, you know, I think I've decided when I grow up, I don't want to be a time machine inventor anyway. I want to do what you do. And, uh, and I didn't think that he knew what I do, because he's sort of in his own world... Uh, a lot of the time, and uh, but he, he said, "So what do I do?" And he said, "Yeah, you make, you make, you record things, and you tell stories." And I was like, I was trying to look neutral, but I was very happy, you know, that that he sort of knew, and uh, and that he could imagine doing this, even though in many ways I wouldn't recommend it either, because it's it's not a it's not a job that makes you rich, for instance. But um, uh, but when he said this thing with the time machine and, and the stories and the radio, it sort of came together, sort of this came together in my head like some kind of snap. Uh, because it just occurred to me that, that a good story is like a time machine, you know, it can take us places and uh, it can make us travel, you know, to, into the minds of people and to worlds that we've never seen and we can see it with sound and words and, and all these magnificent things that we can do with radio. So, um, yeah, I erased the workshop I was planning and I just drew this, uh, which is sort of pretty much unchanged. I have some things I'd like to add later. I also dream of having it built, but uh, time machine builders are hard to find. But uh, So I named it the Radio Verticalizator and uh, I'm going to try to demonstrate it today. So, so when I was preparing this workshop, I was, I was feeling frustrated. And I, I had been for a while, like every time I prepare a workshop, it was like I felt like I was lacking some kind of language to talk about this radio feature making, which lends so many techniques from music and from literature and from poetry and photography and film. And, um, and I felt like a lot of the teaching material that I had received when I was learning and a lot of sort of the terminology and, and sort of it's sort of more linked to uh, journalism you know if, 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 if the radio feature lives in a house you know I always sort of had to enter through the door of, of journalism and I had to sort of say it's not, it's not about this you know and, and uh, you know unlearn almost I wanted people sometimes to unlearn what they knew from maybe their daily jobs in um, but, but, you know, radio, it has, like, if we don't think about journalism or genres, it has this kind of uh, potential, you know, that we can work radiophonically with storytelling and work with layers and uh, work with this space that radio has. And, and radio does this so well. So, um, yeah, I was, I was going to Finland to teach, and I just sort of really wanted to find a way to that these journalists would sort of forget everything they knew <laughs> and, and, uh, and sort of wash, you know, 
the, the what's it called? This thing on the wall, you know, wash it, start, start on a fresh, you know, and uh, forget everything they knew about journalism and just sort of think about radio, what, what can radio do, and, and maybe sort of try to find their voice or their expression, uh, enter this house from a different direction. So, uh, yeah, and that's, um, that's what this is about, this machine, more or less. So um, it's like in a radio story, you know, time passes and we can't really do anything about that. We can't stop time. And that's wonderful about radio too because it has this nowness. It's here and then it's gone. But, but radio can also create like a, an illusion of space. And this space can be many things. It can be a physical space, a landscape that we paint with words and sounds. But it can also be emotional spaces or dream spaces or crazy spaces or absurd spaces and temporal spaces like time spaces, time stretched or faster or whatever. And um, sort of you can, you can reach some layers, I think, of human sort of experience that, uh, that are sort of some complex kind of um, emotional, how, how, we, how we perceive the world. The radio can sometimes, I think, you know, really uh, illustrate that or be that. So there's also the space of the pause, you know, and all these sort of less uh, tangible senses we have of speciality as, as humans. Um, so and we can blend these spaces together as well and, and sort of something third comes uh, out of it. We, can, we can't ex escape time and the timeline, but I think that we can often forget to use this vertical uh, sort of timeline or axis in a story and we can forget to use this space that, that radio offers and that's, that's a shame I think and we can create layers you know with subtext and of sound and contrasts and pictures and metaphors and sounds that transform into something else and we can use double exposure, triple exposure two things happening at the same time and a third sort of layer is created out of that um, Lots of techniques from literature there too, and photography and so on. So, yeah, and sometimes there's just a space that one voice creates as well, you know, like I was listening to it last week, this um, Dylan Thomas's play from the 50s, Under Milkwood. It's like, it's just one voice, but it really creates a huge space. So there's a lot of ways to do this, and, uh, and I think this machine is not about doing it in one way, but it's for us when we start sort of to produced that we look at it and say how can I use this space for this story or even for each part, little part of the story so it's like an idea it's like a visualization of an idea or an approach or an entrance into this house uh, it's, it's work in progress and I think it doesn't really hold water <laughs> all the way you know there are some parts of it that I haven't uh, thought about enough uh, it was actually nice to be in this session before about sound design because there was people there that could speak about sound in a way that I can't, you know, but um, it's sort of related to this. So, um, and I think even though I've made this for radio feature making, I think it can be used in many genres. Uh, it's not just for the crafted uh, radio, but also in, in live interviews or whatever, you know, just, it's, can I create space, you know, here? So, I'm going to uh, go over the time machine and play a few examples, and then you can ask uh, questions uh, later. And I want to play an example from a story I made, uh, uh, like, last year. It's, uh, it's a story that starts in Denmark, and it 
continues to Greenland. It's called The Woman on the Ice. Um, you should look at the first page. Um, and I think before you listen, it's just the beginning of the piece now. And maybe try to imagine like a black space um, uh, before you hear it. Uh, I just want to add something I forgot to say. When I started in radio I, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I, I found this old book that I read. And it was about the sort of early fascination of, uh, of radio, how, how it was a black a black space, like an other, and everything could happen in this black space. And it was like, it really impressed me, this text, because it's, I think this is, this is what it is for me. And every time I start a story, I try to imagine this, this black space, and, and you can really fill it. You know, if you have the black, empty space, you can, every time, you know, you stand in front of it and say, you know, what am I going to fill it with, you know? What's, what's with this story, you know, what should be the first sound and the second sound, and with what energy should it enter <laughs> this black space? And uh, you can have sounds that have a color or words that have a color. And you can really sort of, you can approach it in different ways, like as if you're painting or writing or even weaving or building or whatever. Um, so um, I like to start a program sort of visualizing this black space. And, uh, and if you just sort of visualize a black space now, so here's the first example. Det er her, historien starter og slutter. På isen. En ung kvinde, der går afsted. Det er næsten fuldmåne. En aprilnat i 1933 på Grønlands østkyst. Kvinden er på vej ud mod fjordmåningen. Hun har en skistav i den ene hånd. Hendes fodspor i den nyfaldende sne slanger sig afsted. Og så stopper fodsporene ved iskanten. Skistaven ligger på isen. Kvinden er væk. Jeg har hørt en historie, sagde min mor for nogle år siden. Hun havde hørt den i Østgrønland, hvor hun arbejder. Der hører hun mange historier og fortæller mig lige så mange. Men denne her historie blev ved med at dukke op. Historien, hun fortalte, er kort. En ung dansk kvinde rejste i 1932 som den første danske sygeplejerske til den tyndt befolkede grønlandske østkyst. Hun uddannede sig som sygeplejerske med det formål alene at komme til Grønland. Men hun nåede engang at være der i et år. Så en nat gik hun ud på isen. Hun fortsatte ud mod havet til iskanten. Og her slutter historien. Sammen med fodsporene. Når jeg lukker øjnene, kan jeg se fodsporene for mig. Skikkelsen på isen under månen. 
Jeg kan høre sneens knitren og det lille hak, hver gang skistævnen rammer isen. Når jeg lukker øjnene, forestiller jeg mig, at det er mig, der går. Men jeg ved ikke, hvem jeg er, og hvorfor jeg går. På min højre hånd ser jeg Sømandsfjellet. På min venstre troner fjellet Polheim med sine syle spidse tinde. Det er koldt, men jeg fryser ikke. Jeg følger fodsporene. So we had like black space a moment ago, and now it's been inhabited with the ice and the moon and the mountains and this woman walking like on the ice in the middle of the night 80 years ago, we learn, and 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 sort of me walking there too in a way, and uh, and uh, yeah, I was I was, you know, I needed to create the mind in the mind of the listener. I needed to create this uh, this space of Greenland somehow, and. Um, and also set the tone of the program and and uh, in this piece i work a lot with with this double exposure sort of because she travels to greenland and i travel and and our travel somehow um there's some connection that happens uh, during this trip um and you know using these layers it's it's a nice way also to to convey information maybe in a more evocative way sometimes uh or to create suspense and move the story forward. So, but anyway, I, I should present this uh, now. So we have the black space, okay, that's where we begin, and then we, we fetch the verticalizator. And uh, it's, um, it's just a very normal time machine, you can see, but I've just I've changed the, the knobs here, so it's instead of saying, you know, back to the future and to the Stone Age and stuff, it's, it's the basic ingredients of, of radio. And the D... It means distance and middle and closeness. And it's the same parameter on all these uh, knobs. Uh, so it's uh, distance and closeness in many different ways, but I'll, I'll get to that. But I think distance and closeness are sort of quite good parameters to work with uh, in, uh, in radio because I want to, when, when, I, when I record, when I go and record a story or I write or I use sound or whatever, I think... It's nice to sort of have a dynamic material and we can get that by altering these knobs during the process of recording and writing and editing. So the whole idea is to to make us more conscious as radio makers before we go recording, you know, what kind of space of reality am I entering? What am I trying to capture? What sounds do I want to bring home with me? What's my focus? Who am I in the story down here? What's my aim? Uh, point of view, how would I like it to sound and sort of what what am I after? And I think I've I've often asked myself this question much too late. And I've sort of it's really sort of learning by doing and lots of missed opportunities and lots of mistakes and sort of bringing home a material that was sort of flat and didn't really offer it didn't have the thing that I was after this first idea I had which was so sort of full of details and I came home and the material was sort of Undynamic. So um, we want to create pictures in the mind of the listener, and often when we make a feature, this genre is sort of defined as a corner of reality perceived through an author's temper or something. I think it's that's the words. And you know, we need to breathe some soul into radio. I think, and and uh, and we can do that by 
turning these knobs a little. Also sometimes leaving our comfort zones. So um, I think it's very important that we sort of tell stories where all the ingredients are connected to the story, where they're not sort of on top of them like a, like a wet blanket. So the first knob is the position of the author, and it's, it's a very important knob, I think, because this is a question we should ask ourselves before we embark on a story. And I've really forgotten to ask myself this many times, you know. Sometimes it was uncomfortable to ask myself this question. I, I mean, maybe this is especially when we work on, on more creative pieces or documentary pieces where we, where we come and sort of interfere with reality for a longer time and we, we take the stories of people that have something at stake. And It's very important, I think, that we ask ourselves this question. You know, will you be confronting, critical? Then you should put it over here. You need the distance to do that. You know, oh, is it like a totally personal thing? Are you the subject? Where are you on this scale? And this might change a lot during the piece, but it's good to keep asking yourself these questions, you know. So um, I have a fondness for authors in, in radio features that are a little neurotic or a little sort of... Uh, sort of uh, full of human flaws, uh, if they're like a visual or audible part of the story. Uh, but it's also wonderful with authors that put their print on the story through the editing or the way they use sound and, and so on, through interviewing. And uh, But I want to play an example from that I heard in Berlin two weeks ago. There was this yearly competition, Pre-Europa, and it's an American uh, young radio maker. She lives in Stockholm and she she was there with a piece called It's Private. So it's, uh, it's her living in Stockholm interviewing another expat in Stockholm. And she's really sort of looking for a family. Actually, she's looking for a mother. It's a surrogate mother. And uh, she interviews her friend's mum. And she really yearns for some kind of closeness. Uh, and uh, the interviewee, the mother, sort of refuses this and uh, kind of play a your husband is Swedish. Yes. And you met in Lesotho. Yes. How did you meet? Well, we worked in the same department. I was working as a volunteer and he was working on a UN project. And tell me the story. No. <laughs> no, I, I don't do personal stories about my relations. Don't trust her, she's lying. Can <laughs> <Strictly> I? <lying. laughs> sure. Christine would probably welcome. I'm having a brave being interrogated. <laughs> She's not getting very far with me because you know I don't talk about the past and I don't get sentimental about things. Yeah, that's true. Christine, how would you feel if I asked Saren how you met to tell the story about when he first saw you? I don't think he would tell you. Can I ask? But, uh, what, what? Brett, Brett wanted to know if she asked you about the story of how we first met, would you tell her? And I said, I don't yeah, think so. No, no. I shouldn't do that. No, no. 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 So, so um, I think she, she hadn't expected this re reaction, but very soon she asked herself, uh, I know from talking to her, her name is Brett Ascarelli, by the way, I, that, uh, that she sort of had to adjust this knob and, and she was very clear about her position towards this woman, you know. And, and it sort of turned into a game which became 
the engine and the charm of this story. I think if she hadn't sort of confronted herself with this uh, question and used, sometimes it's, it's a good idea to use things that go wrong in the story. It's usually what, you just use it for the story. It's where the energy is. So in the next clip uh, from the same story, she has sort of <coughs> manufactured a, her fantasy. She, she recorded her fantasy about how, how they met uh, at home when she wakes up in the morning. She records it and then she goes to see uh, this woman and, and plays it to her. And, and again, I think this is only something she can do because they sort of she's clear about her position as an author and she's been clear about it towards the interviewee, the person that she's portraying. And this clearness, I think, is, is really important sometimes for this uh, space of trust that you need to, to work with these kind of stories. All right, ready? Yeah. This is when you meet Saren. Okay. Did we talk about that? Well, <laughs> not really. <laughs> so I don't think we talked very much about that. She's new at the University of Lesotho. It's warm there really warm even though it's September mm, no Lesotho is a mountain kingdom <laughs> it's warm about three months of the year <laughs> um, one of the people she meets is this guy with a funny accent there's something about him Maybe it's the weird things that he talks about. He seems to know all sorts of facts. It's like a little encyclopedia in his head. She's already has a family back home. He invites her over and he shows her this carving that he bought in Kenya. It's a carving of a rhino, a pregnant rhino. <laughs> he offers to make her dinner. That's highly unlikely. <laughs> but she'd better be going. Over the next few weeks, though, she thinks about him. And the next time he invites her over to listen to him play the drums, she stays for dinner. And then she stays for breakfast. And then there are many breakfasts. This is your little fantasy. <laughs> Just a guess. Nope. But never mind, we want to fantasize. <laughs> Is there any part of it that's that struck true, rung true? I, you know, you make it sound sort of nice and romantic, etc. I'm not a romantic, and neither is Soren, so I just don't think it doesn't. You could be talking about somebody else entirely. 
You weren't even a romantic back then? No. no I'm just not. So you're trying to there make me into something I'm not. Yeah, so, so Brad is a, she's an author with a, an unusual mission. She's really looking for family or even her mother. And, uh, and because she's clear about it, they can sort of embark on this game. Or like, it's almost like a duel. And the suspense is sort of when will, when will she refuse her, you know. And, uh, and they don't, she doesn't. So she opens up a little and that's it's beautiful. Uh, but sometimes we don't know, you know, what our position is until we're very far into the story. We thought something and it changes. And, um, and this confusion is good, I think, as well. But just as long as we keep asking ourselves, you know, this question. And the next excerpt I'm going to, to play is um, it's a piece uh, by a, a Greenlandic radio producer. Her name is Henriette Rasmussen. And um, I was teaching a course for Greenlandic and Icelandic uh, Radio makers and in radio feature making, and uh, and she wanted to um, produce a piece about Greenlandic men. She said there's so many unhappy Greenlandic men, uh, and there's sort of families that break up, and uh, there's a lot of uh, problems, drinking and uh, suicide, a lot of suicides, and uh, young men, old men that have a hard time sort of finding their place in in society, and. Uh, and she'd found this little circle of men that met once a week in sort of a closed circle and told each other everything. Sort of like a completely safe space for telling everything. So she wanted to, to make a program about these men and this circle, but of course they never let her into the circle. Uh, and when she came to Denmark at the end of this course, and, and her and I, I was coaching her, and, and we sat down to sort of finalize this piece, and... We just realized that we hadn't we hadn't asked ourselves this question, you know, what's your position in this story? Why are you making it? Just to add something as well is that sometimes it's also good to, that we ask ourselves, like, is there anything in this story that that I'm afraid of? Or these questions too, I think, can be relevant for certain kinds of stories. You know, maybe we sometimes use subjects that. Uh, are some kind of the therapeutic, you know, uh, process that we're going through. And um, so we had this conversation, and she said, "Well, everybody close to me are suffering. All the men close to me are suffering." And while we had this conversation, the phone rang, and it was a close relative, and he he was like really unhappy. His wife had thrown him out, as far as I remember, and he was in the street, and he was drunk, and and she put down the phone, and she was so upset and unhappy, and and uh, and we talked a bit, and he was like, "But this." feeling you have now, this is like this is something we can you know, this is an energy we can use to tell this story because the material lacked dynamics and it lacked direction because we hadn't thought about this and then she just went upstairs uh, sat there on her own and, and talked and, uh, and we used some parts of these things that she talked about in the story and developed it later and um, yeah so here's a clip from that, I think it's number two, isn't it, in the script? Sorry, I just need to set it up better. Um, she's been walking the streets of Nook, Greenland, and uh, she's been sort of seeing men that she knows and old schoolmates uh, sitting on a bench, drunk and so on, and she comes home. That's where we are.
Valmuit nasunguit sikartuapsivisumik, sungartut apadutut. Itsidariyallam sunana nipersua. Kiisamakillunga ingaramukatunga. Pasidariyallainga arfersuinuna nipad. Asa nipi. Isumariopunga Angnaviak Angotiviarlo Pangikuni Samingikuni Nipidiotoyoisusu Anibunga Sidatartu in Nabu Puyopo Kisianisanani Takusinangi. Tamalatu saasin naavakka nipelvojussuhi tupin naktun. Ahfilet imaanut tammakkipput pujohlu nipäänni kivittisok aamma kivivok. Sokinok kissakpok sidän nakli nisla taakterosluni. Kangersunni pangnanik uri kaapok. Ääränni ukadukatsinga kikkusukkaruakku. Piumajun naapokli. Kisienni jukku ukadukatsingaa. Jukku aamma angutsit ukadukatsingi tarfiennut idaapok. Kaltrissimissäänni ukiokakpok. Kajohtuni isokakpok. Uikumadu senidraa. Uenna minä sua. Annen sisämäni apakannikuun ja kiinnostunut jäivää. Queen Lannikuun, it's a so long. It's different pace than American radio, So, so this piece just came together when we realized, you know, that her position as a storyteller should be over here, and she could sort of be the engine. She became a character in the story, and it was her point of view that took us on this trip. She moves a lot between inner and out of space in this story too, sort of inside and outside. And, um, and these layers, there are more and more of them as the story goes ahead, you know. And I think the, the charm of that is like after this scene, she's, she's talked about these whales and she goes out on the street. And even though this scene is finished, for me it sort of continues as a sort of invisible layer in, in the narrative. And, and that's part of using this space as well, that we have more and more layers uh, inside, inside our head when we listen, you know, subtext or, or whatever. Uh, she's really working on that axis, I think. Um, 
I'm not sure she could have made this story in any other medium than radio either. And uh, I like stories that have that quality when they sort of they're made for radio. Now the next knob uh, is microphone distance out there, and and I put it there because it applies to all the other knobs. So when you turn one of these knobs, you should also consider microphone distance. And uh, I'll just talk shortly about it. So so we have like extreme close up, which is here to two inches, and six inches is close up, and uh, medium close up is here, fifteen in, uh, twenty inches, and then we have like wide shot, long shot. So that is basic. Uh, distances we can use um, when, when we use a microphone and of course if we create a picture and sound we can use it like with a background and a, something happening up here and on the sides and in the foreground and so on uh, and this is something we should consider always um, but also when we like we can cast characters in a story using different uh, distances of microphone so our protagonist uh, can be closer. We know this person is more important, or that we should get closer to, to this person. Uh, while maybe the uh, characters on the side, or even the antagonist, can be like out here. This uh, this distance, uh, uh, medium close up. It's often used for interviewing politicians, and you sort of you hear you hear this space, you hear the room. Whereas extreme close up is like being inside somebody's head. You know, it's like being in this dream space or inner space. Um, so we can we can use it to cast uh, and we can use it to build scenographies and uh, I think that's that and I just want to add that today I'm just going to talk about interviewing and narration and the position of the author uh, because I don't have time for 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 all of it and also because um, I think these are where the story usually gets flat. You know, the scenes, the verite, uh, the situations that we, we record that are happening here, sounds, the music, are sort of close by nature. They create space by nature, not close by nature. They, they create this space, and, and we should just use it more. Another reason why I'm talking, not talking about that is that I haven't really... I haven't got the language for it, so I, I would I would want to learn more about it. But um, I think there are many details one could go into regarding that. Uh, but interviewing narration and the position of the narrator are some of the ingredients that we use more in traditional <coughs> storytelling and journalism. And and I think we have sometimes the tendency to sort of develop habits that are very safe and not sort of to be creative about how we use these. Uh, three things and it's often the use of this that can make a story flat I think in my opinion um, so the next knob is interview and uh, this I hope it's clear by now that this machine is sort of open to any questions so if you have a story you sit down by it and you have a question how should I do this and, and then you sort of make your own questions and answers using it so it's just sort of to enhance attention to this um, and I find it very useful when it comes to interviewing because we have to make a lot of choices when we interview. From the genre, we look be investigative to the totally personal uh, inside the head kind of thing uh, with lots of pictures or more general information, etc. Um, will it be confronting and so on. Most of the interviews I do are more sort of the personal stories and uh, uh, somehow sort of getting close to people, but sometimes I need to take a step back. So it's also sort of where are we comfortable and maybe challenge ourselves and not do what we always do, but what's best for this story. Um, 
looking at this interview now, it's also good if we do these personal stories where we need to create a, a space where we can have trust and, and some kind of uh, sort of contract between us so that people feel that they're in, in good hands and, and relax and talk. Uh, so, so some kind of attention to this before we go out. It really, it really helps you, you know, and you can also decide that certain parts of interviews with a, with a character can be done like with a very sort of close-up technique while others can maybe be more general or confronting uh, and with different microphone distances and techniques so that even if we just have one character in a piece, we have different dynamics for that person, maybe showing different sides of that person or whatever. I didn't used to think about this either when I started and, and sometimes I, I was in situations where I wanted to get really close to people but I hadn't communicated to them and I wasn't really aware of it and sometimes it made people insecure and they sort of backed away and I've, I've found out like in the last years that if I'm clear about this if, and I, if I say it, they might say no but if they say yes then we have a much better premise to work from so um, we can also use it within the interview the genre itself, and, and there's a, there was an American uh, radio maker that moved to Denmark in the 60s. He was a radio feature maker. He passed away last year. His name was Steven Schwartz, and um, he developed some techniques, uh, and one of them is, is something he called the moment interview. It's kind of an interviewing technique where you get completely close to a moment that's happened in the past, He often uh, spoke about that, how we, as, as humans, we sort of develop parts of our history. So it's sort of like the party version of our life. It's sort of, yeah, I'm this kind of person and this is my life. And he wanted to get past these sort of developed stories that we have. Uh, and uh, I was so lucky that I learned it from him and... Um, And once uh, he sent me to do an exercise uh, interviewing a woman. She was a female politician. Our first meeting was, she just talked about politics and dates and the names and I uh, was completely confused. But from this, she sort of talked about a period in her life where she had been, she'd been running an orphan, orphanage. And uh, the next time we came back, I saw her, she talked a bit more about it. And then after a while, I decided on a moment in these years uh, of her work there that I wanted to go into. So I sat next to her, uh, like side by side, and I just said, I'm going to, you know, just close my eyes. Don't think about me. I'm just sitting next to you. And we're outside the orphanage. I open the door. I say the first sentence, first person, present tense, and I ask her to repeat the sentence and continue this uh, walk into the orphanage in, in her memory. So she says, I open the door. Um, I walk in, maybe I say, back out, you know, stand in front of the door, what, what do you do with your hand? Yeah, I put my hand on the doorknob, so it's like close up, what do you see around you? I see the, the yard, it's, the full moon is shining, there's the trees, so we have a wide shot, you know, so we're using this inter interviewing technique in this sort of same cinematic way that um, we can use microphone or sound sort of to create space And she walked in in her memory, sort of into this, this uh, orphanage. And this woman that had been talking so fast, you know, we sat there and it was a completely different voice and, and pace. And she, she, she walked up to the, to the room where the kids were asleep and she sat down in her memory. So it became like a memory fantasy and she just sat by each child and said something to them and sort of caressed their hair. It was, it was very 
beautiful. Um, so this way we can sort of get past some developed versions of, of life and maybe reach memories that, that uh, can, we can really see it before us. I tried this technique in a course I did with, um, with a group of uh, refugee journalists and, and the next clip I'll play, it's, uh, it's a young girl. She was interviewed by a, a classmate about the first time she wore a burqa. And she does it in, in past tense, but uh, I think it works anyway. And here it is. It's my first time that I have to use burqa. My mother gave me an old burqa and she tried to put it on me. It was a long dress which covered me completely. On the top there was like a hat and a hole in front of my eyes as if I was in a jail. I couldn't see anything well and I suddenly took it off and told my mom that I'm not going anywhere. She told me, try it again and you'll get used to it. I got the burqa on again. It was a sunny, hot day in Kabul. I stepped out of the door and I almost fell down on the street. Suddenly I couldn't breathe. There was not enough space in front of me to breathe. I couldn't see anything. I just heard people around me. People are passing me by. I was pushed by people and I was just standing on my place. So, I think she could have presented this as an anecdote in an interview. Yeah, I remember the first time I wore a burqa and I almost fell. But here I'm, I'm with her, you know. Um, so we can get rid of some of the distance that language creates with this technique and, and also make people slow down. A lot of people refuse it, I've tried that, but um, sometimes it works. Some people talk like this naturally and are very sort of connected to memories and it can be a good way to access people in a different way. Stephen Swartz used to put people on the floor and turn off the light, you know, so they sort of light on. You know. Not everybody wants to do that. But. <laughs> so the next uh, knob is the narration. Uh, I prefer in features or in any kind of program, really, except where, where you, you want an objective narrator. I, I, I prefer storytellers, uh, the voices, people, that, the, the narrator, I prefer it when they sort of stay inside the universe of the story and uh, that they're not someone sort of that's completely outside looking down on this piece, which I find often happens if, if we record a narration later in a studio and do it sort of in this newsy way. It really doesn't work in features, I think. Um, it doesn't mean that it has to be a sensitive narrator, but just someone who's connected to the story somehow, the universe of the story. And years ago, I made a feature with two others from a summer camp in Denmark. And we, we were like portraying kids and we were sort of trying to do this from the point of view of the kids all the time. To, that It was their universe we wanted we needed a, a narrator, but we didn't want to use an adult, you know. So we, there was this boy who was sort of very good with words, and I took him to our camper van. It was, we were there two weeks recording, and it, it sank in the sand. It was on a beach, and it sort of sank deeper and deeper into the sand. It was really warm in there. And we sat there, me and him, and I asked him, sort of using a bit of this Stephen Swartz technique, to, to uh, close his eyes, and I said, you're, you're floating on a cloud now above the summer camp. You know everything that happened. 
happens here, you know. You are God. You can look through the you can look through the doors, you can look into the brains of all your friends, you know, you know everything. And and uh, and then I say, look down there, there's like there's three little boys and there's two big boys coming. What what's happening? What happens in this situation? And he would sort of just start talking and we covered these different themes and concrete scenes in, in this uh, camp and, and we edited it later and he became the narrator and it, it really worked well and, and I, I thought, you know, I've tried to use it several times since that you, if there's somebody in the story that can do the narration maybe instead of you in a more close to the universe of the story way then I think that's, that's worth a try. There's a lot of habit, I think, when it comes to narrating in radio. And I like, I like these surprises sometimes. And a radio show that really inspires me when it comes to this defying habit is, is Love in Radio, uh, which you probably heard, all of you. And it's this sort of creative mischief and sort of solutions that stay inside the universe in the style, it's the style of interviewing or music or even narration. And one of my favorite stories is uh, The Wisdom of Jay Thunderbolt. And I really admire the way that the authors find solutions that keep everything close to this raw universe that the story has. So it's like the solutions are born out of the energy of the story. And, and uh, So here are two little examples. Uh, we arrive at Jay Thunderbolt's house and the author needs a description of the place. Uh, and, uh... I'll wait in the alley for an hour. Before finally this black lady in the second floor apartment said, I think he, I think there's something wrong. So, Noah. Yeah. Can you describe what Thunderbolt's house looked like after we arrived? Um, it's got like this, this like 70s furniture that's really well worn. The carpet's all uh, kind of matted down. Yeah, so the author really does everything, I think, in this story to avoid traditional narration. In, in, in this uh, excerpt, it's, it could have been him just in the studio saying it looked like this and this, but instead it's as a phone call, it has sort of the same tone and texture and nowness uh, of the rest of the story. Here's a, a second example. What do you do for a woman, Noah? Uh, nursing. Mom and Dad must be happy that you don't have to be on their Blue Cross card anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. I have a different Blue Cross card. What's yours look like? Not like that. Hey, this is Nick again. You know, I, I hate interrupting like this, uh, but uh, what's not actually clear from the tape is that at this stage, uh, Jay is taking out a gun and is now pointing it about two inches from my face. Here it is again. I have a different Blue Cross card. What's yours look like? Not like that. <laughs> there was so what a is that? Got it. 38. It's a 38. Something's got P loads in it. So I think these solutions, both, they, they don't rip me out of the universe. Sometimes it's fine to have a narrator that's distance, you know, that has the distance that gives me, as a listener, the space to sort of make conclusions if that's needed uh, in some investigative pieces, etc., news of course uh, we don't want a really sentimental <laughs> news reader we want that distance but uh, with these kind of stories it, it works very well uh, it adds so much to the feeling of the story these solutions you know um, 
a few years ago I was, uh, I was doing a project with three others. We were traveling around Iceland uh, portraying deserted farms. And uh, we were four, speaking four different languages and we had to produce these pieces for the Icelandic radio. Uh, so we had this translation problem and narration problem and um, uh, in the next uh, excerpt I'm going to play I'm with uh, another girl, we're in this farm, we just entered, it's an old turf house and we've entered through the back and it's full of things, it's been left 60, 50, 60 years ago and just somebody just left and left everything and we're trying to sort of fantasize about who lived there, who were they, what happened and... Um, and so the narrator in the piece, uh, he's, uh, he's actually my husband, he, he found this idea that uh, he would be a singing narrator, translator narrator. So that's, you should have, I think, page three now. Heimkommer. Eller så är det en ensam pappa med två barn. För spåren av mamman finns inte riktigt där. Tvärkonor en dansk, en sansk av evig För det var kun en ime, Ja, precis. Kretetla, duka, skaper med snirtive. Jag tänkte slet ikke på teenagepige, der var derinde. Men nu när du säger det... Isländske fagnen av bätta, pater av alta vjär. Det var ingen frigjord kvinna som bodde här, om det bodde någon kvinna här. Vödler, buxor i bråten men så fick jag också en följelse för att det ligger inte i de där flaskorna. Och där uppe var en barnsäng. Var det det? Det är lätt att tänka sig att det skulle vara våldsamt där på något sätt. Alltså, tänk om det så måste det vara en skibidning. Voldsomt eller enorm resignation, du ved. Mm. Fuldstændig opgivet håb i en eller anden mørk vinternat. Har de pakket det allermest nødvendige? Åh, oh, bare draget. Og gået ud over hedene. Sne. Kolla, vi kan blot spinde. Yeah, so I think he ended up making like 30 songs. We made, I think we made three one-hour pieces for the, for the radio drama department in Iceland. And we really thought about these places as a stage, you know, and, and um, it was a lot of fun doing this. And he made songs about all kinds of things, you know. Uh, so I've been talking a lot about space and layers and verticality, etc. in this presentation when we record, but a lot of it also happens in the editing, of course. And I really love this part of the job because it's, it's like where we can put these layers together and, and it often surprises me what happens like how one and one becomes more than two um, and there's just so much more we can do if we have a vibrant and dynamic material that's close to the, the core of the story or the universe of the story or the sound world of the story or the emotional world of the story and when I use this uh, when I teach workshops I, I use it in two parts you know first for collecting and then for editing and I i like to ask uh, people in the course to sort of put it in their head, sort of make a little room for it somewhere and, and turn it, turn the knobs during the process. Ask again and again, even, you know, every time you record a new scene, you know, what, how, should, how should the knobs be here, you know, or a new interview. So it's not enough just doing it in the beginning of the process. It, it's a continuous thing. And one 
sort of effect in editing that I really love is, is double exposure, triple exposure, or layers of situations that happen and sound and words together that create these vertical spatial um, sensation and, and it, can, it can create suspense and subtext, etc., etc. There's also this temporal effect, how we experience time differently. Uh, and there was a piece in Pre-Europa that I heard there too, uh, um, the winner, the program that won the competition. It's called Woman Found Dead by Lakeshore, by Hugo Lavet. It's a man that's been accused of killing his wife. And uh, they live in a forest in Sweden, and she's gone missing, and they've been looking for her. And, uh, and he comes back to the house. It's dark. There's spaghetti on the stuff that he was cooking before all this happened. The TV is on, and he's just been charged with this murder. And he sits down in the living room, and the, and the narrator describes just the spaghetti on the cooker, uh, the TV, where there's somebody running uh, like a hundred meter without sound, and then this man sitting in the dark, and it's sort of described from his perspective, but also from outside of the window, and it becomes like sort of a, a temporal, emotional space, you know. We know how we feel when we're in shock. It's sort of a shock space <laughs> that he creates there. Time is stretched. It's very efficient. Um, so, um, 15 minutes left. I want to play one more clip. Is that okay? Yeah. So, um, in the beginning of this session, uh, I played a... a the beginning of this feature I made in Greenland last year, Woman on the Ice. And I used double exposure a lot in this piece because it is about her travel and, and me that follows 80 years apart somehow. In the next uh, excerpt I'll play, I just found this woman's diary in the Arctic Institute in Copenhagen. So in this diary she travels to Greenland and I travel as well. And I try to um, sort of illustrate this in the next clip. Dokumenter, fotografier og kort for Arktis. Jeg finder den. Ja, der er to mapper. Karen Ros, den sygeplejerske, som var i Marsalik i 1932. Men der er et problem. Det er kopi af afskrift af dagbogen. Det er bare en kopi af en maskinskrevet afskrift af dagbogen. Og mere end det. Karen nåede kun at være i Grønland i ni måneder. Men den her dagbog mangler tiden fra januar til april, da hun forsvandt. De sidste sider er skåret ud. Resten af dagbogen findes muligvis i den lille by, Karen ankom til i 1932. Kolonien Amasalik hed byen dengang. Nu hedder den Dasilak.
den 29. 7. skriver han. Hvad siger du? Jeg skal videre med helikopter til Dasila. Ja, jeg har... Tågeregn bølger. I sådan et kedeligt råt, surt, modbydeligt koldt vejr holder vi vores indtog her Marsalik. Så skal vi ombord i helikopteren. Turen modtog os ikke på en pæn måde, hvad befolkningen derimod gjorde. Allerede langt væk fra kolonien pilede nogle kajakmænd os i møde. I skulle se dem fare afsted, vippe på bølgerne, ind imellem isflager. Vi fik fortøjet, og koloniens herre kom ombord. Og vi var nede i salongen og drikke et lille velkomstbære. Jeg var i den. Det er lidt ligesom, den fortsætter ud i fjorden. Bjergene spejler sig i isflager. Altså, det bliver sådan et puslespilsspejlbillede. So I, I try to create sort of two times at the same time, you know, her 80 years ago, and And, and me now, and it sort of continues uh, through the story. Um, so this radio verticalizator is, is it a visualization of an idea, and, and uh, it's sort of an invitation to think through these possibilities of a story, really, all the time. And um, I think my experience from all these missed opportunities and mistakes that are sort of in my past and that I keep doing, you know, and also as a teacher and a coach, is that we really need to ask and remind ourselves this every time we, we make a story and, and all the time during a story. It's like with life, you know, it can be really uneventful and depressing if, if everything is on the same sort of frequency and uh, if there's no space and no dynamics, it's the same with radio. So I just hope this can inspire you and that you will dive into space. Thank you. Perhaps other mediums that do this kind of work. I can't hear you. Oh, um, maybe stand up. I'm wondering. You gave us some examples from radio, but you said inspirations from literature, from photography. Yes. Who are the other artists that are doing work in this um, imaginative way? Do you mean like in these other art oh, forms? Yeah. Who, yeah. Who's inspiring for you? Well. I mean, it's, I think it's more like the techniques, so it can be cinematic techniques, so it, like photography uses double exposure. Uh, uh, literature has a lot of techniques, like uh, temporal techniques, or how we describe details, using details, developing character, etc., etc. So all these different uh, art forms, they have a lot of uh, techniques that we can sort of pour into radio, uh, painting, whatever. Yeah. So it's not that much specific artists. Of course, sometimes specific ones inspire me, but uh, I can't think of any right now. But it's more general. Yeah. Hmm? You're all hungover. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, I produce 
stories as an independent for Wisconsin Public Radio, and it makes me want to, you know, get more into the sounds and that sort of thing. But I also make oral histories for families. Mm. So when you talked about the technique of getting people to be in in the scene, mm. you know, I'm going to try to use more of that yes. in my getting people's life story just for their families, not for the radio, but for their families. Yeah. And the other thing that interests me about what you're doing is I spent 30 years before this as a visual artist selling my work around the country at art fairs. And I've always wanted to do, I actually did do a 13-foot-tall piece called Worship at the Altar of TV that incorporated five TV sets. This didn't have to do with art fairs. This was an installation piece. But do you know people who are do, working with sound and visual arts and making installation pieces? Yeah. Um, lots of people. The so it's oh. if, if, if I know people that work with installation art and sound, yeah. Yes, I know people that do that. <laughs> of their work? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's different things, you know. It, it's, I mean, there's a lot of uh, different approaches uh, to this. Uh, to sound installations, you mean? Sound and, and the visual component. Yeah. I'm not sure how to answer your question. It's it's sort of. I'm wondering if there's a structure when they're using sound with visual art. If there's like a a visual structure, yeah. Or if it's a, a video and sound, or. I mean, there's so many ways to do this, and people people work a lot with audio walks and all these things where you go out and and what happens around you becomes part of the story, and there's in galleries and, and uh, multimedia things, so it's there's a lot of uh, ways for that, combining picture and sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know you said you can't talk about all of the knobs, which uh-huh. I understand there's a lot going on in this beautiful yes. picture, um, but can you explain just a little bit of, of this sort of, when you turn music from one side to the next, yeah. um, what's on this side? What's it will usually side? be to find music, for instance, that's in the universe. Uh, sort of, if if you can sort of create music close to the universe of the piece, uh, but it can also be, you know, if you want to use it emotionally or illustratively or uh, um, ironically, etc. There are different sort of distances you can use music for uh, sentimentally. See. That's and my so, thing. And would sound be the same? Sound is, is um, I suppose, first, the first question would be, will I use sound, you know? And if I want sound to be a part of storytelling, then turn, turn it over there, and, and then the next question would be, what kind of sound am I after? Uh, if I want to create some kind of a very realistic uh, soundscape, then I should go for those sounds... Uh, if I want a more emotional or a poetic uh, soundscape or a raw soundscape or an absurd soundscape, it's, it's sort of, you know, I often look for sounds when I go out that sort of can cross between sort of the real sound world of the place and sort of can gain some kind of emotional or poetic or some kind of other quality. Uh, okay. so, in, in, so it's just sort of a figurative distance. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, today this session that was designed 201 that would be online for those who didn't hear it, but there was another, I had lots of new ideas of how this knob could be applied because there was sort of ways of staging and uh, using filters, etc., with sound. So, so I'm not that sort of, I've, I've thought mostly about the other three knobs, I have to be honest, yes. Yeah.
Yes? Um, you talked about how the length of the Greenlandic words, but uh-huh. I also noticed in the pieces that you played, there was so much spaciousness. And yeah. coming from a mostly newsy American public radio style, it's yeah. just, like incredibly spacious. This feeling. So I'm just curious about what the what the outlets were for, uh-huh. for these pieces and how, how many constraints are put on you when yeah. you're making none <laughs> <laughs> no this uh, the woman on the ice I produced for a Danish podcast called Third Year and they just publish like whenever they have a story and, uh-huh. they, and whatever it, length it yeah takes. what's best for the story so that was a lovely privilege to, to work with that uh, sort of with these conditions I like that yeah and what about the, the piece? The, the, the piece from Greenland? Uh-huh. I mean, that was part of a course, so that was as well, just oh, uh, as, as, as long as, as it had to be. Uh, I'm just wondering, is there a market like on, on the actual radio for mm. pieces like that? Is yeah, there yeah. an audience for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And is, mean, it, it's is most it more in the radio drama? It's in the radio feature department uh-huh. in... in different countries that, that do this a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's a quite a Nordic style, somebody told me, you know, that it's not as snappy. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Yes? What are the most interesting or most popular Danish radio programs right now? I think it's 30, actually. Uh, the Danish, uh, the Danish uh, public radio, they, they don't... Uh, they don't really have an outlet for this kind of radio anymore, so it's 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 outside of radio, more. And uh, and I also produce for for Norwegian radio and Swedish radio, and and they 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 use this. Um, yeah, they they have departments that uh, support this kind of more artful approach, maybe more than the Danish radio does. So. Mm. Yes. Do you have any suggestions for how we can encourage um, media outlets to carry uh, more creative and more interesting programming? Because it sounds like uh, the problem with rigidity in uh, public media is it's not just unique to the United States. Yeah. I mean, I think um, just by doing it, maybe, by turning the knobs yourself, and because I think you often get positive responses <coughs> from doing that, and the uh, of course, what's sort of uh, proper or, or within each genre? If you do hard news, you know you can't uh, you can't turn it completely uh, close. But uh, just have more pictures and more surprise and more maybe less habit or yeah. You, you found but that as you as you turn the knobs, people respond well to it in that. Yeah, a lot yeah. of I mean, we want to reach people. We want to people to identify. We want people to uh, connect. And, and radio really does this, and there's a lot of things that we hear in radio that disconnects, you know, information and uh, sort of unconnected voices, disconnected voices. And uh, I think if there's any chance for you when you produce something where you can make more of a connection with some kind of uh, connection, then that's that's sort of the purpose of this. And I, so we can we can sort of brainwash these rigid. <laughs> media institutions by doing it, maybe. I don't have other answers. I'm hungover too. <laughs> yes. um, so I, I'm working in multimedia in Pittsburgh, and I just, I don't have a question. I just want yeah. to say, I'm going to hang this at my desk uh-huh. and use it as a reminder oh, for every like, genre yes. I'm working in our yeah. platform. I think it'll be
be very helpful. Thank you. I'd look forward to hear how maybe in a year or something if it's if it's changed something or yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to color mine in. <laughs> I didn't hear that. I'm going to color mine. Yeah. 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 Just, just go over one more time, like a, an interview. What's close and what's distant? Do you mean in this interviewing technique? Yeah. Yeah. So a distant, more distant genre could, of course, be like a, a investigative reporting kind of where you need to have. You need to have the space to be able to confront people, and uh, and and you're very clear in your position as an author. I'm here to reveal something or make these uncomfortable questions. So there has to be some distance for you to, like in boxing, you know, if you're up here, it's not no good. But if you you know, if you're doing other kind of narratives where where maybe the closeness is important, you know, um, then um, then a close biographical interview or just some kind of connection with the interviewee uh, this can be done in many ways uh, you know is it a bit about sort of how present you are like within the it's a bit about the contract I think between the interviewer and the yeah. interviewee so so just to be clear about it I'm here to investigate you so I step back and 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 this is what you can expect. But if I want to make a very personal story with somebody, then I will say, you know, I'm going to sit really, I really sit close to people when I interview them. It's like I touch with my shoulder against theirs when I do this moment interviewing technique. And uh, and uh, I, I, I sort of try to let them know that I'm not afraid of anything that comes And if something comes that is uncomfortable for them, it's okay, and they can say, "I don't want this on air." So it has to be like a safe place or a safe room, um, with some sort of respect, uh, so they don't feel abused or, yeah. And then there's lots of things in between that. I mean, you have interrogation as well, in, in uh, which can be interesting for some programs as well. Mm. Yes. Am I off the hook? <laughs> <laughs>